This is the Education Gap Live Show. Because it's just an excuse for me to <laughs> tell our listeners okay. about the time that the Fordham staff did the escape room thing. All right. What does Godfly say? Hello, this is your host, Mike Petrilli at the Thomas B. Fordham Institute. Here at the Education Gap Fly Show and online at FordhamInstitute.org. And now, please welcome my special guest for this week, Paul DePerna. Paul, welcome to the show. Hey, it's great to be here with you. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being on. Paul is the Vice President of Research and Innovation at EdChoice, one of the nation's leading school choice advocacy and research groups, and it is awesome to have you on the show. Paul, I forget, have have you been on the Education Gadfly show before? No, this is my first time, so uh, I really appreciate you guys inviting me to be on here. I listen yeah. every week, and so you, and you've been doing it a long time. You guys were pioneers in the uh, K twelve reform podcasting. We were pioneers. I, in fact, I, I think I was inspired. Get this by Al Gore when Al Gore was doing his <laughs> podcasting way back when. Oh, so right. isn't that that is dating me? Well, also joining us, David Griffith. Hey guys. David was probably teaching back when Al Gore was uh, Al Gore. So, uh, yeah, <laughs> right? Mike, I was being taught when Al Gore. All uh, right. Well, yes, when he was vice president. Okay, sure. But his podcasting days were after that. That was when he sort of reappeared uh, and, and got into the climate change thing. Well, right. hey, enough talking about that. We have Paul on the show because Ed Choice has been doing a great project called the K-12 Public Opinion Tracker that's providing monthly updates about how the public public is viewing K through 12 issues. And so, of course, that means right now that they have some timely data on how uh, parents and others feel about how things are going with this COVID crisis, with folks responding to remote learning and all the rest. So let's talk about that on Ed Reform Update. All right, Paul, you've been doing a great job with opinion polling there at EdChoice for a long time, asking questions certainly about school choice, but other things as well. So tell us about the latest poll results. What have you been able to ask parents and I think others too, right? Teachers and the public? Yeah, so that's right. Yeah, thanks, Mike. Uh, so we partnered with Morning Consult starting in January to do a monthly tracking poll of the general public. And then out of that sample of roughly 2,200 adults, we had a subgroup of parents of school-age children in K-12. And so we're tracking their responses too, and really focusing on the parents' responses. And then every quarter, just this past March, we surveyed teachers. And so public school district teachers and also charter school teachers and private school teachers, about a thousand per quarter. You know, we've been doing an annual poll like Ednext and PDK for some years now. We borrowed some of those questions from our Schooling in America survey. And so we continue to ask them now on a monthly basis, but then we've been able to add new new questions for the general public poll, but then also for teachers. And so some of those new questions, now that we have this monthly tracking poll, we're able to kind of be a little bit more flexible and more responsive to current events. And so in March, we were able to put in a set of questions related to the pandemic. So we put that poll in the field in like mid-March. So this is right when, you know, schools were beginning to close and, you know, the stay-at-home orders were beginning to be issued by governors. So we, you know, would ask, you know, parents, particularly how they feel, you know, prepared, did they feel prepared about this shift to distance learning and e-learning? We asked real basic questions about if their school is closed, Closed completely, or if they are going to e-learning, or if they're doing some other form of distance. 
distance learning, maybe through packets, you know, hard copy materials their school are providing. I mean, it's surprising to me, our family, we have two young girls in elementary school. We did not feel that prepared uh, mm-hmm. for, for e-learning when we went through the transition. But, you know, about two thirds of parents said that they were at least somewhat prepared, feeling mm-hmm. somewhat prepared for that move to e-learning. And then, you know, we asked a similar question to teachers and just roughly about the same proportion said they felt at least somewhat prepared. About 38% in April of school parents said they felt very prepared. Mm-hmm. Uh, which those numbers are surprising to me. And it'll be interesting to see if, those, if, you know, if there's any movement come May and June after the last wave occurred right around spring break time. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so I'm wondering, you know, mid-April through May could be really when parents are feeling the weight of e-learning and teachers are feeling that, you know, the weight or stress. But that's just speculation. So, all right, so, so, okay, so we've got, so two months really so far. So March, just as the schools were closing and then another round in April. Right. And folks, it's interesting, are feeling okay and the whole about their own preparation. I mean, look, this is part of the great American can-do attitude, right? People, yeah. are, we're going to figure this out. We're going to make this happen. And that's the, either can be viewed as a great attitude or we just delude ourselves. <laughs> into thinking, right? This is the same group of parents, 90% of whom in other polls say that they think their own kid is on grade level and doing fine and on, on track for college and career when, when we know this now. And just to be clear, Mike, you're disparaging all American parents there, right? Yes, <laughs> well, that, that's right. Yes, myself included. Yes, because yeah, I mean, how oh. would I answer this poll? I'm sure I'd be like, yes, I feel prepared for this, you know, and then if somebody really pushed hard, do I feel like my kid's getting a great education right now? Yes, maybe not so much. All right, so Paul, any other questions that you were able to ask them about how it's going or is that the main one? That was the one that really stood out. I mean, we did ask them about how disruptive mm-hmm. uh, the pandemic has been generally to their household routines, the community. They seem to say that it is especially disruptive to their community, community at large, mm-hmm. uh, even more so than like their own household routines. The parents' union uh, group came out with its own poll recently, and they were able to ask some questions around, you know, basically, how do you feel about the services you're getting from schools? Do you feel like the, the school's doing a pretty good job or not? How do you feel about going back to school and the health and safety issues? Can, can you get into any of that in your poll or, or not? We haven't dug that deeply into those kinds of questions in terms of, you know, specific actions or activities that uh, that schools have been able to try to make adjustments or accommodate. Mm-hmm. But that is something that we're looking into and something I have you know, said on our blog and, and even over social is that we welcome any you know, ideas for new questions, mm-hmm. um, especially as it relates to the pandemic. I'm, we're all eyes and ears. And mm-hmm. so that's something that we can you know, make some adjustments on a month to month basis. That particular poll, this is, again, Parents Union, the, the group that Kerry Rodriguez uh, leads. You know, it was interesting in that most parents were saying they f- actually felt pretty good about what they were getting from their schools, which, again, I was a little surprised that there was not more angst. We certainly see plenty out there on, on social media and, and other venues with a lot of frustration as parents feel like kids are only getting a little bit of instruction every day or, you know, that there's not necessarily a lot happening that didn't show up and that parents were expressing that they were in no hurry to have kids go back to school, that they're really more worried about health and safety. They do not want to send their kids back until yeah. they feel like it's safe, which, which again, right now, given that the pandemic's still raging in a lot of communities, you can understand that. But yeah. again, a different message than we're hearing from some politicians or, or some other leaders who seem to assume that, hey, we got to open up in September a hell or high water. We did ask a question about, and there's some consistency there in our poll too, the similar to the union's poll, so that instruction, missed instruction time is a pretty high concern, but even more so is exposure to the coronavirus. And we're planning to ask maybe 
one or two different kinds of questions about reopenings in the fall. And it seems like that question, the responses we're getting currently do have big implications for how parents and teachers feel going into the fall, um, especially if, you know, the number one concern is just their, you know, being exposed virus. And so... Correct me if I'm wrong, but you asked these questions probably before some of the most recent information out of New York, right? I'm sure you guys have seen it. You know, they're starting to see symptoms in kids, right? And they don't fully understand. So it's going to have to force all of us to change our thinking if that sort of, well, hopefully it doesn't, hopefully we don't find out more about that. But now, you know, we're still not sure about whether kids can get infected at the same rates or whether they're spreading the virus at the same rates, right? Mixed, some mixed studies on that, though it sure seems like right now we've got to assume that they can, right? And that if you want to design an institution that would be just perfectly designed to have a super spreader incident, you think about a school, you know, with crowded kids and, you know, not great ventilation and close proximity for a long period of time, touching each other and each other's stuff. And yeah, right. Most kids don't get too sick. But as David says, it sounds like some small group of kids are, and that's disturbing. But if they can bring the virus back home to mom or dad or, or grandma or grandpa, uh, now, I mean, all that's, that's deeply concerning. David, what other questions do you think uh, we need to know about right now or would be helpful to know as this moves forward? Well, I've been thinking recently that we haven't been talking, at least on this podcast, nearly enough about testing, Mike. Sorry, not that kind of testing. <laughs> wait, which, wait, I, you know me. I, I talk yeah, about testing. I like tests more than anybody else in the country. Oh, you don't yeah, mean standardized right, right. academic you know, achievement I mean, tests? I mean, sorry, I mean coronavirus testing Corona, here. Uh, I mean, yes, okay. it's obviously, it's sort of the elephant in the room. I'm not sure quite what to say about it. There's sort of so little hope that we're going to be able to scale it fast enough based on present information. But I, I do kind of wonder if maybe the education community shouldn't be speaking with more one voice on this subject, or if there's a way to, I don't know, prioritize kids, right, or prioritize schools for testing as as our capacity ramps up. I'd be interested in just knowing how easy it is, or how hard it is, rather, to get a test. Probably not next month, but starting in a few months. I just don't see how we're ever going to beat this, right, until we get to a point where we can test kids at least, I don't know, at least weekly, right, mm-hmm. or, or something. There's, there's proposals out there for millions yeah. of tests, uh, you know, a day. I don't know if that's feasible, but um, mm-hmm. that's what's been on my mind. And Paul, I would be very curious, you know, I'm, I'm working on something right now with some specific advice for how, how to maybe some of this reopening could work, you know, because I, I run a think tank. So of course I, you know, who, who else better to do this than me? <laughs> but uh, it seems to me that you have to give uh, families the option of full-time online for next yeah. school year, or really until there's a vaccine. Because, you know, if there's somebody in the household who's at risk, they got to give the option to keep the kids at home. I'd just be curious to know how many families would take up that offer. If, yeah. if the offer was, you know what, you don't have to send your kid physically at all next year, you'll get some kind of hopefully high quality, decent quality uh, remote learning experience instead, uh, how many people would take take up the schools on that offer? And you yeah. know, the, the more that do, the easier it is to manage then the social distancing for the rest well, of the Well, and kids. plus, Mike, I, that's a great suggestion, and I should have made it. This is a number that's going to be changing in June, July, and August, potentially. I, I think we just need to, you know, if anyone can provide clear information Mm-hmm. school systems about what to expect. It'd be a huge public service. Yeah, I just don't know. How many? How do parents feel about that? Are they up for that? No, I, I think these are important questions. You definitely have me thinking about what we could maybe even add in our next wave. But I think there has to be some sort of layering or, you know, kind of a dual track of or dual option, at least a dual option for, for families to do, you know, to do the online learning, especially, I mean, there's anecdotal evidence and like some, you know, stories I've read about parents who are, you know, getting more and more comfortable as they go through this with, you know, mm-hmm. distance learning or homeschooling 
Will there be a change in the, you know, the uh, number of families who opt for homeschooling mm-hmm. totally? And it's, you know, for right, them, right. They, they control the curriculum. And then you have those families who, okay, maybe like Mike, what you, you know, suggested if the district or the private school, charter school offer, you know, an online curriculum as well as what could happen inside the building. You know, this gets to the social distancing considerations, which I'm still trying to wrap my head around how school can manage social distancing, uh, depending on the building layout and the number of kids in the school and and adults in the school. And I was talking to a friend of mine who's a superintendent in southeastern Indiana, and they're wrestling with this issue about whether or not they need to do like half day, Mm -hmm. you know, in school, you know, kind of staggered by grade or by classroom, and then how to properly space out the classes throughout the school and and within the classrooms. Yeah, look, and and as as, you know, we've been obsessed with all those questions here on the show. And but do you need to assume that, you know, if you've got kids at home, even every other day or in the mornings or the afternoons, and they're young kids, uh, then the parents can't work, you know, so does your superintendent friend, you know, he or she feel responsible for figuring out a way to allow the parents of small children to be able to go back to work? Or maybe a lot of those people, well, they might, they're out of work right now, but hopefully that won't last too much longer if there's a recovery, but do they work during the school day? Maybe some of them work at night. Anyways, they're really just understanding how this could play out yes. um, because the more kids that can learn at home safely just takes pressure off the schools in terms of the other kids that, that really need to be there every day. Yeah, I agree. And, and thinking about just the different ages of the children too, and their you know, degree of independence. Mm-hmm. I mean, talking about e-learning for first and second graders is a much different, you know, story yeah. ball game when you're ta- you know compared to high schoolers. Yeah, and independence, and and that that should be a huge consideration. And I'm just saying, my my family right now we're we're watching Stranger Things, and I, you know, I, it just reminds me how much middle schoolers can really do uh, very independent, including hunting down monsters and things. So, anyways, I just uh, you know, look, we do, and I don't hear too many people talking about that difference by age, uh, which again, it, you know, to the extent that we can find out from parents, we might see that, you know, parents of high school kids, of course, think about this differently than parents of little kids. Well, hey, so much good work. Keep it going. Hope you can use some of these suggestions in your new polls and maybe you can come back in a few months and let us know what we're learning. That'd be great. About how this experiment's going. That, yeah. Thanks a lot for having me. All right. Well, again, Paul DePerna, Vice President of Research and Innovation at EdChoice. Paul, thanks for being on. Now it is time for everyone's favorite, Amber's Research Minute. Welcome back to the show. Thank you, Mike. How's it going down there in Richmond, Virginia? You know, day by day, it's a beautiful day. My yard has never looked better. I'm working many, many hours in the yard, so it's great. Uh, You know, I I just uh, was overlooking uh, the taking care of our yard by my 12-year-old son who is out there Uh mowing the lawn. It is such a great stage that we have hit now. He he mows the lawn. (laughs) Good. Dinner the other day. It's uh, this is pretty sweet. I gotta say. Yes. Well, I've got many flowers. They're looking great. Uh, well, that's good. Look, silver linings here. Well, tell us what you've got for us this week. Got a little different paper from NBER. It's from a couple Harvard researchers, David Deming and a couple other colleagues from Harvard. They're trying to contribute, I think, to the growing literature around non-cognitive skills and how to measure them. So they design and test an experimental method for identifying individual contributions to group performance which is different. Uh, The paper's called Team Players, How Social Skills Improve Group Performance. And so they go through this introduction talking about employers are routinely saying that they want new hires to be able to collaborate and communicate with others and work effectively in teams. 
They always say those are desirable traits, but those things are really hard to measure. So this study asked whether certain individuals are, quote, team players, meaning they improve the performance of the group conditional on their own skill relative to the tasks at hand. So it's not a K-12 education study per se. I'll just put that out there. But at the end, hopefully, we can all brainstorm and think about whether there are potential implications for K-12 and college education. So it's a lot to the experiment, but the crux is that they recruit around 400 undergraduate and graduate students from the Harvard Science Lab. Not sure what that is, but anyhow. And they participate in multiple individual and group tasks. For the group part, individuals are randomly assigned to teams through a blocked randomization procedure, which basically means they're ordered according to their mean performance on the individual problem-solving task that they perform beforehand. So they do a bunch of individual tasks before they do the group task. And then they classify each person high, medium, low skill on the individual task. And then they put them in nine or 12 member groups. Each group has a, a member from each of those skill blocks. And then they randomly pick other participants to flesh out their group. Okay, so in in essence, this repeated randomization procedure that they do on multiple tasks helps them to kind of um, nail down whether the variation they're seeing is arising from these unmeasured individual attributes or from the group dynamics between the team members themselves. Anyway, the gist is that they're estimating group performance, controlling for individual task-specific skills on the individual problem-solving task. Hopefully you follow all that. Separating the geniuses from the super geniuses here, right? I mean, the- yes. <laughs> oh, because we're talking Harvard here. Harvard so, students, yeah. Harvard. our low-skill Harvard students from our Harvard. Island. Yes, yeah. Harvard. And is this basically an escape room that they're having them do? Uh, because that's how I'm picturing it in my head. Uh, it, it's a lot of memory tasks, short-term memory tasks. Which <laughs> okay. They had it, a couple of them in the appendix, and I'm like, there is no way I'd remember that. But anyhow. All right. You have okay. to change a tire to get out of the room, Mike. Sorry. Go okay. Because it's just an excuse for me to <laughs> tell our listeners about the time that the Fordham staff did the escape room thing. All right, all right, all right, all right. Sit right down now. I think I was the team player on my team, but anyhow, we digress. They find that some people consistently cause their group to exceed its predicted performance. They call those folks the team players. These folks score significantly higher on a well-known measure of social intelligence, which best predicts whether someone will be a good team player. A variety of other factors fail to predict team players, including IQ, personality, they measure the personality through that big five personality test, education or gender, none of those are good predictors. And then next they do this exploratory test where they gauge whether team players encourage teammates to increase effort. So maybe that's the mechanism that's, you know, going on here. And they look at results for one of the time tasks administered to the groups. They find that the groups that had a team player didn't rush as much as the other groups, meaning they, if you rushed, you turned in the task before the time was up. So they said, you know, there's suggestive evidence that team players encourage groups to exert more effort. Last thing, I was just curious about the social intelligence measure that they were using since they kept really honing in on that was the big predictor. And uh, it's called reading the mind and the eyes. And apparently it's this, you know, reliable, well-known, valid measure. But what it does is it covers up the face of a bunch of people and all they can see are the eyes. And then participants are asked to choose which emotion that these folks are exhibiting just based on looking at their eyes. You know, they're saying that the researchers say effective teamwork requires individuals to read their teammates' emotional states, and that's a form of social intelligence. 
Anyhow, what they don't discuss, if you buy the results of the study, is whether social intelligence as measured in this study is something that's malleable, maybe can be strengthened in adults or students, and that sort of thing. So anyhow, it made me think about all the times we're assigned group work over the course of our life in college and K-12 education. It always seems like one person is taking on the brunt of the group work. So that's why I was interested in in reading uh, what they found out. But anyway, over to you guys. What do you make of it? I just want to know how much it costs to administer this eye test to prominent think tank researchers and presidents. Can we get the (laughs) results of that made public? Because I feel like they would be illuminating. Our listeners can't see us, but I'm like covering up my face for my eye Well, as long as President Emeritus of think tanks are included as well, I think that would be very interesting. (laughs) Okay, that's on you. Oh, come on, come on. Everybody knows Checker doesn't listen to the podcast. It's fine. Uh, Look, this stuff is fascinating, and I think it's great to keep looking for these measures, but you you raised the important point, Amber. Is this stuff malleable? I just don't know if we know, and what if it's not? You know, I I would think if if it is, maybe we can have an impact on helping young people learn how to do these skills. And I look, I, I got to do some really great leadership training when I was a student and then ended up doing a little bit of it in an instructor role, you know, for young people. And I look, there's certainly some awareness that you can help people understand and some hard skills and soft skills you can teach, but it does seem pretty likely that some of this stuff is, is pretty hardwired into people right? Mm-hmm. Did they say anything about that? <laughs> yeah, no, they didn't actually. That's why I was saying, you know, I thought yeah. that was an important part mm-hmm. of the discussion. It's been a few years since I read the uh, emotional intelligence, you know, book that was so, you know, popular. Yeah. And I don't remember what, what that ended up saying, Mike, do you, whether they thought mm-hmm. that was malleable or baked I, in? And it seems related. I, yeah, that they thought some of that was was malleable. I also found interesting that the personalities didn't matter. Again, I, if, if I could recall that some of those ways they measure that, I think there's one for narcissism, for example, right? So you would think that people who are narcissistic maybe, uh, you know, would not be helping their teams. But Hey, I was just glad that men got let off the hook, Mike. I mean, I yeah, was, I was yeah. just waiting for that, you know, men <laughs> are don't, yeah, we're better individually than group, but I guess that's not the case, huh? Yeah. Well, Har- right, well, men of Harvard, at least. All right. Well, well, key lesson for me is next time we do the escape room, I'm going to administer this test ahead of time and make sure the people in my my team are good at the social emotional stuff. I think that's that's the key takeaway, right? Uh, I got it. I think so. Reading the mind in the eyes. I'll send the link around at some point. All right, good. Interesting stuff. Thank you, Amber. Well, that is all the time we've got for this week. So until next week, I'm Dave Griffith. And I'm Mike Petrilli of Thomas B. Fordham Institute, signing off. The Education Gapfly Show is a production of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, located in Washington, D.C. For more information, visit us online at FordhamInstitute.org.